So this morning we're going to jump into this new sermon series on 1 Peter. It's going to take us right into the summer, and uh, that's if summer ever decides to show up. Um, but we've named this series Exiles. And just to get you thinking with me this morning, I want you to go back to the, the last time in your life where you felt like you didn't fit in. Think of like Dorothy and Toto, like we're not in Kansas anymore, are we? Um, ever have that feeling? Of, maybe it was a, a trip overseas. You realize you were a foreigner in a different place. Maybe it was your first time at the gym. I tell you, my dad's fishing right now, so I can tell you this. This week he retires and for the, the first time in his life, the three of his sons, we decided to get my dad a gym membership. So that's going to be fun to watch. <laughs> maybe you recently moved to Bozeman. And maybe even right now you feel it. Maybe you feel a little bit awkward and, and new. I mean, this letter, to, uh, this, this letter and in this series, the, the Apostle Peter, he writes to these churches who find themselves strangers in a foreign land. And to help them understand what God might be doing in, the, in their midst, Peter calls them exiles. You're going to see that this morning. Because what they believe has put them at odds with the culture around them. So Peter pens this letter, with the help of Sylvanus, to encourage and spur them on in their faith. And what I want to do for the next 12 or so weeks is I want to take this timeless word that is God's word, and I want to see if these same words, I should say when these same words, speak to us in our own cultural moment of exile. So we're gonna look at chapter one, verses one through 12. So let's just open this up and dive right in. It's a bit wordy, so hang on, buckle up. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him, Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. The grass withers, <clears throat> flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Years ago, I uh, led a mission trip 
to New York City after Hurricane Sandy. And as a part of this trip, we took our students by train to go check out Times Square for a day of fun. And the day went off without a hitch. We had a great group of kids. Everything worked out well. But on the way home, we got to our last stop and we exited the tunnel. And when we did, I immediately realized we had messed up. We had gotten all 30 kids off of this train, multiple exits too early. So now we're maybe two or three miles from home and I didn't want to go through the hassle of getting all the kids back on the train, so we just decided to walk for it. We're heading down the streets, uh, looking at our Google Maps like tourists with these blue shirts and it's now getting late, the sun is going down and a police car pulls up next to us. We made this awkward eye contact, I didn't think much of it, he just kind of sat there idling and about the time we got a block down the road, the, the officer pulled up in front of the group and he parked again. And for a second time, we repeated the cycle. Awkward eye contact, he waited till we got ahead of him and then he pulled in front of us to the next parking spot on the street. And after we did this three or four times over, he pulled me over, he motioned us over, he said, do you have any idea where you are right now? And I said, I think so, I mean, Google knows. He said, do you realize you are walking your kids through one of the most dangerous neighborhoods in all the state of New York? You know, we were quite oblivious as I think back to that, that day, but to everyone else driving down the street, right? It was obvious. We were misfits, exiles, we, foreigners. We didn't belong. Look again at our lesson. I want you to see something unique about this lesson. It, it begins with a really powerful statement. Look at how it starts in verse one. Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ. You think about when you write a letter today, uh, where do you put your name, at the beginning or the end? Typically the end, right? But in Greco-Roman culture, you actually signed your name often at the beginning. And Peter wants his readers to understand that he's not just writing on his own behalf, he's writing as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Remember, that word means sent one. This is the Peter, the same one who walked with Christ for years, the, the rock who Jesus said he would build his church upon. And now that his readers understand who is sending this letter, Peter now wants to make it start clear just who he's sending the letter to. Look at this. He says, to those who are elect exiles in the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Kind of like that officer on the street. Peter says, I write to you as exiles. The Greek word here is paripidemos. It means to be a, a temporary resident of a foreign place. See, it's clear today as Peter, these churches are not supposed to fit in. They are sojourners. They are exiles in this world that they found themselves treading upon. Those five names that Peter mentions were these Roman provinces near the Black Sea. And, and so he's, he's sending this traveling letter to exhort the local churches along the way and how to live as exiles for Jesus. To the exiles of the dispersion, he says. And here's how we might interpret that, right? Peter's saying something like, to all the Christians scattered and dispersed on this earth whose citizenship is not in the ground beneath their feet but is now in heaven with Jesus Christ. You no longer live for the, the kingdom of this world, you now live for a different kingdom. There's trouble with this. Look at, look at what he says in verse two. He says, my grace and peace, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. 
Imagine a, a father comforting his son who's feeling a bit out of place after a, a long day at school. Peter's writing a, to a homesick church that needs to be reminded of, of God's grand plan of why they exist in the first place. Abner Small was a commissioned officer in the Confederate Army in the Civil War. And in August of 1864, Abner and his group were captured and made POWs by the enemy. The conditions of this camp were not good. The soldiers were constantly exposed to elements and food was sparse. Abner kept his notes in his diary of the declining morale among his men. And look at what he wrote about his exiles. He said, they became homesick and disheartened to the point that they were dying of nostalgia. Their exile status had, had worn down the, the countenance of these soldiers to the point they were ready to give up on life itself. Peter says, to the elect exiles of the dispersion, to those facing headwinds, not only of opposition, but even the beginning first fruits of persecution. And notice this, he doesn't just name them exiles. If you have your Bibles, look again in verse one. He names them chosen exiles. See, Peter, he wants these churches to know this is not some random mishap. This isn't some, just some unfortunate trial that's come upon you. This is a part of God's plan. You have been set apart. You have been chosen as his witness according to what Peter calls the foreknowledge of God. You know, I think it's time that we talked about what it is and what it means to be chosen exiles as God's people. Hear me out, this is, this is not a new idea, right? This is a, like a biblical, timeless concept. It started with God's covenant with Abram as he set him and the people apart for his name's sake, continuing in a church with Jesus Christ and our witness. And yet you and I, we walk in a cultural minute where living the fullness of your faith means making a conscious decision to think and talk and act different than the world around us. Let me say that again. We live in a cultural moment where living the fullness of your faith means making a conscious decision to think, talk, and act different than the world in which we live. See, but the challenge with being chosen misfits is that as human beings, we're hardwired for the opposite of that, right? Like really deep within us, inside of us, we all have this strong desire to fit into the mold. You see this all the time. Starts in grade school, on the playground. Then it continues in life, right? As human beings, um, we are constantly chasing what, what might help us fit in. I'll give you a couple of trivial examples. Of, you ever notice how many, I should say how, how little, how few fishing hats and Patagonia coats exist outside of Montana? Like hop on a plane, land in Chicago O'Hare, and you quickly realize how different the world is, right? If you've been in an airport recently, you can always spot the Bozeman Gate. You don't even need to see the word. Just look for the coats and the Sims fishing hats. Or how about this one? You know, the one that's been plaguing me as of late. Chip and Joanna Gaines. Everybody know that name? Magnolia Farms down in Texas. Joanna, she's the one who started making this farm, farmhouse style house, right? How do I know this? I know this because if Jen had her way, we would shiplap the entire house. 
Again, trivial example, but we like trends. We, we fit in, right? But when it comes to our convictions, what we believe to be true, I want to make this really tangible. Peter is talking about something as relative today as 2,000 years ago. As followers of Jesus Christ, we are chosen to stand out among the crowd. And yet, if that's true, if that's true, we have to ask some hard questions together. Starting with the most obvious, which is, do we actually stand out? Let me just throw out some random thoughts, some questions that maybe we'll visit in the midst of this series. First is this, how do Sabbath people, that's us, how do we respond to a world that says faster and bigger is better? What is the appropriate response to that? How, how are we called to look different in our relationships as exiles? How do we respond to a, a culture that no longer accepts Sundays as a part of God's worship? What do we do with our kids when if they come to church, they're gonna be left out of the, the Dietist team sport? What is the faithful reply when my employer asks me to sign on the dotted line something I can no longer in good conscience agree to? What's a Christian to do with that? How do we raise our children to be loving and bold in their faith without ostracizing them from friendships and influence? As one scholar put it, I think he put it really well. He said, Peter calls us aliens because we are, and yet he never once called us to alienate ourselves from the mission field that God's put us in. So this morning, I thought maybe we'd talk about something that I've, I've called the traveler's guide to a foreign land. And I wanna just ask out loud, how do we travel well as exiles on this earth for the sake of Jesus' name? Three things I think Peter points out for us right off the bat in this letter. And the first is this. This might sound obvious, but the first is this. We aren't meant to fit in. Now, if there's one thing I think that the church needs to reevaluate, it's that we have to stop expecting the culture around us to capitulate to who we are. When you travel to a foreign land, everything is different, right? You, you speak a different language. You're used to different idioms. You, you eat differently. You, you speak with a weird accent that you didn't know you had. Look at how Peter explains this difference in verse three. He says, he has caused us, you and I, to be born again to a living hope, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven. Let me just summarize that. Because of the resurrection, we now live for something that is not of this world. Set apart. When you were born of the flesh, as we all were, you were born of this earth in your sin. But when you're born of the Spirit, you now live for a different kingdom altogether. And I think one of the misunderstandings that we struggle with in our pursuit of Jesus is that we expect the world to conform to our reborn mindset. We're constantly shocked that people don't see life like we do, that they don't have the same morals or values. And yet, biblically speaking, this has never been the case. You know, the reason we call it amazing grace is Think about the lyrics, I once was blind, but now by the power of the Holy Spirit, I see. I feel like we so often, we get into these spats with people that we disagree with because we expect them to see things that we see even though they're walking blind. 
Until recently, the church in the West was quite spoiled, I think, by this national assumption that everyone shared a similar foundation of faith as we do. In fact, if you go back to the 1950s, it was glorious. Our, our national currency was changed to reflect that reality within God we trust. In 1954, the words under God was, were put in the Pledge of Allegiance. Four out of five Americans went to church. And yet I think also in that assumption, we, we began to lose perspective. As one scholar noted, he said, the phrase, come to Christ, soon got replaced by the phrase, come to my church. We began to jockey for transfer growth. And because our culture says everything's bigger and, and better, we should aim for that. Instead of making disciples, we got caught up in the latest marketing schemes and consumerist ideologies. Whatever it takes to get them here, we'll, we'll do that. And don't get me wrong, I think it's a good thing to be relevant. It's a good thing to think about how we share the gospel in a relevant, pertinent way. But the fact is, the gospel got watered down. And soon the church became biblically illiterate in order to appease the lowest common denominator. And in our attempts to grow, we began looking much more like the world around us. And as a result, we began to lose our witness. So you have to understand, as long as the enemy is the ruler of this earth, the culture that we swim in will never fit the mold of God's people. We scroll the, the headlines, right? And we see those who are living a different lifestyle than us and we're shocked. We, we cannot believe it. So how do we respond? We, we get angry and with complaint and fear, we, we soon begin to put the other in these political crosshairs as the label as our adversary. When we, what we forget is they're not so much the enemy as they are blind, which makes them what? The mission field. Peter says, you've been born again. You're now living for something imperishable, kept in heaven for you. How do we travel as exiles? First, we have to admit who we are. We're not meant to fit in. We should live into that. But second, if that's true, then as exiles, I think that means we should expect trouble. When I say the word Alexa, what company comes to mind? It's easy, right? We all know the name, 65 million units sold last year alone with Alexa in them. But whoever came up with that name never thought about the hundreds of thousands of women named Alexa who now unfortunately stand out in the crowd. Recently, the company addressed uh, the bullying and the badgering. They said, bullying of any kind is unacceptable and we condemn it in the strongest terms. As an alternative to Alexa, we offer several other new wake words customers can choose from, including Echo and Ziggy. Got a bit more creative on the second time around. Now we're fickle, right? It's a part of the human condition. We will find the anomaly in the room, that which sticks out, and we'll poke at it. Whatever stands out, it gets picked on. And again, it's kind of like the schoolyard, right? When you are a misfit, you know trials are coming. So I think when it comes to elect exiles, the chosen aliens, the, the Christian churches in a godless culture, we should see it coming. Look at this, look at what Peter says. He says, now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, may be found to result in praise. It's interesting, this is the same Peter who denied Jesus altogether under duress, right? We covered that last week, and, 
And that mistake, Peter's lack of faith is revealed. You'll remember Jesus reinstated him then and restored him and forgave him in his repentance, called him to turn his life around. And look at how on fire Peter is now. Look at this, we'll jump to chapter four for a minute. He says, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you're going through as if something strange were happening to you. Peter says, this is the plan. You are called to stand out, to stand firm, and to stand as a witness for the gospel. And if we're truly living for Jesus, I think one litmus test might be to ask, when was the last time you felt the cross that Jesus called you to carry as you followed him? You're not really playing football if you don't feel the occasional shoulder pad, right? You're not really sliding into home plate unless you're colliding somewhere with the catcher. There's a cost to being in the game. Jesus says, you're a city on a hill. You are a beacon for the world. And I want to point out just two sort of side notes when it comes to these trials that, that Peter says uh, will come our way. First, he says these trials, though necessary, are brief. I think a lot of times when the storm clouds are socked in and, and we're rowing as hard as we can and the water's splashing up, it, it's hard to see that sunshine on the horizon, right? It's like when, when you tell your five-year-old they can't have Easter candy and they melt down. And you say, come on, it's, it's not the end of the world. And they're screaming, yes it is, you don't even know. Perspective is everything, right? We forget from an, an eternal view, whatever tension or opposition we find ourselves in as a result of what it is that we believe, it's a blip on the radar. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 4, look at this. He says, for the light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to that which is unseen. For what you see is transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Peter says, these trials, though necessary, are brief, eternally speaking. But also then, Peter wants the Christ follower to understand, you should expect all kinds of trials if you're standing in your faith. Various trials, he says in 6b. It might be something as small as an eye roll or it might mean relational challenges or mental stress of keeping the balance between your convictions and your loving witness. It might mean losing your popularity, losing your job. But here's the important part. Notice what Peter doesn't say here. He doesn't say, and when you face trials, start swinging and name calling and fighting with those who oppose you. No, he says, when the trial comes, rejoice. That's our third point, rejoice. See, now we just went to crazy land. Peter says, when you stand firm in what you believe and you face the inevitable trial and you take the hit, don't play the victim card or push the bully button. Rejoice. Just think about that last hardship you faced. Was rejoicing the first thing that came to your mind? How is that? How do we rejoice in the midst of opposition? Arborists will tell you, a tree that gets too much light and too much sun all at once will sprout up way too fast and die. Kind of reminds me of the parable of the sower. If a tree has an easy life, the faster that, that growth of that tree, the less dense the wood and the more susceptible it is to insects and fungus. But a tree that grows steadily in the mix of rain and snow and winter and spring, that tree has been tested with this slow and steady growth, which makes it solid and imperishable. 
How do we rejoice? Why do we rejoice? Here's why. When God sees you through your trials, as you stood firm in your faith, not in your flesh, but with Jesus, you get to look back and see the genuineness of your faith come alive. Trials are the necessary ways, Peter wants us to understand, by which our faith is tested and strengthened and forged. Here's what James says. He says it like this. Count it all joy then when you meet various trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This week, three things for us to consider for the exiled lifestyles we lean into this series. The first is this. As God's people, we weren't meant to fit in. Second, we're called to stand out, which means we should expect various trials. And when they come, though brief, God's word calls on us to rejoice. Here's our invitation this week. I want you to think, think with me. Three things to pray about as you consider what it means to be in exile on this earth. First is this. Where have you shrunk from God's call to stand firm in the gospel? Not in like an obnoxious way, but where have you wrongly blended in against your convictions because that was the easier path to take? Second, what fear drives that hesitation within you? Dig deep, what is it that causes you to pause from standing firm in what you believe in? Third, how might God be calling you to overcome that for his glory? Let's ask God to help us with that. Will you pray with me? God, we, uh, we find before us a challenging word this morning. We're grateful, um, Lord, for the fact that we can look to an imperishable, undefiled gift of salvation. God, that we can be rooted in your promise of the perseverance of our faith. But God, we also know that there are moments and afflictions that cause our faith to seem quite fickle. God, places where we should stand firm in what it is that we believe, and yet, God, we'd rather blend in. Lord, would you help us this week, remind us this week of what it means to stand out, that you have called us chosen exiles, that you have set us apart to be holy as you are holy. Lord, in the foreknowledge and in your perfect plan, God, we pray that by our witness, others would come to know your love as we do, that they would see as we do. Lord, would you help increase our faith? And would you help us to live into it? In Jesus' name, all God's people said, Amen.